You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey, nerds. Welcome back to another episode of What the History. First off, happy Thanksgiving, because that's when this is coming out. Second off, um, hopefully you are social distancing yourself this holiday season because shit's gotten real bad just Uh like we knew it would uh so sarah and i decided that in order to celebrate thanksgiving we wanted to talk about um a badass babe that neither one of us really knew anything about um and she is probably one of the coolest most obscure figures that i have ever like learned about yeah um, so we're going to be talking today about Dr. Susan LaFleche Picot, and I practiced saying her name four times before I hit record and before I called Sarah Fair. for this uh, recording. Um, I literally wrote Picot at the top of my paper because I wanted to make sure I didn't screw it up and then deleted it because I felt like an idiot. But um, <laughs> Susan LaFleche Picot <laughs> is actually the first Native American female physician. So she is... Yeah. So badass. I also read that she was the first Native American to earn a medical degree, but I don't know. I Sarah will talk more about that in terms of education. I tried to like read the basics about her before I did like my segments. So hopefully we'll kind of yeah. learn a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I read that and I couldn't really find corroboration besides that I read that a couple times. So right, we're just right. gonna I go with like- it. I feel like sometimes people will write it because it's – this is going to sound really messed up, but it sounds better than the yeah. like female physician. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is like stupid, but um, is, I but also feel – I don't know what you call her because she's LaFleche for you for most of your segments. Yeah. I might just call her Susan or Dr. Susan because – Yeah, I was I just going to call her Susan. Whole, yeah, I hate doing the whole, like, Picot. Like, that wasn't her name. That was her husband's name. Mm-hmm. And it was her achievements. So I feel like I always call people by their first name because I just, like, think we're friends. Yeah. Oh, Susan. What's up? Yeah, so then Susan yeah. did this. Like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I'm that's not, fair. That's a weird thing about having moved to the South is I call everyone by their first name. And people here are big on, like, Miss or Mr. This or even, like, Miss or Mr. First name. Oh, and it's okay. really weird to me. So, I mean, like, I feel like up here, I don't really know what we do up here. Like, what I did you call your parents' friends growing up? Mr. and Mrs. See, that's interesting. But I call them older, first name. I call them first name. Yeah, and as a kid, I called everyone by their first name. Oh, yeah. Like, the only, there was a couple people that were, like, my really old grandparents' friends, who I called, like, Miss Marilyn, but almost no one else. And so when I moved to the South, it's, like, weird to me. So what's funny is my grandma's friends, I call by their first name, like mm-hmm. Betty. Like, I don't call her Miss yeah. Betty. I call her Betty. So. Yeah. But, like, other people that are closer, that are younger, I don't say Miss. Right. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. It's a weird thing that I've, like, my friends have kids and they're like, call me Miss Sarah. And I'm like, yo, you can just call me Sarah. We're good here. <laughs> Miss Sarah. We're all good. It sounds like you're a preschool teacher or you teach ballet to four-year-olds. Like Exactly. Yeah. I get Miss Casey sometimes, which is Yeah. But you are a teacher at least. Yeah, but I get um 
I actually had a student last year. I had to tell him he can't call me by my first name. He would say, excuse me, Miss, uh, excuse me, Casey, Miss Casey. And I was like, what is happening me, Casey? here? Who are you talking to? Me? Like, <laughs> me? Yeah. Do I know you? No. You know what? He went to school in India. So I don't uh, know if that was like maybe a uh, thing. Yeah, it's possibly different. So I don't know. I'm going to call her Susan. I might call her Dr. Susan. I might call her LaFleche, but I'm probably not going to ever refer to her as Picot. Yeah. So, all right. I'm going to hand it over to Sarah, uh, who's going to talk about early life and education. Yes. So Susan was born on June 17th, 1865, and she was born on the Omaha Reservation in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. So I had a little side like rabbit hole because obviously I think of Omaha, Nebraska as the city, but Omaha is actually a people. So it's like the Omaha people, the Omaha tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did a little bit of like, I have notes here on just background of the tribe itself. That's probably not super relevant. I just hadn't oh, no, heard. I'm so glad you did that. Because yeah. honestly, again, I don't like, we don't get to learn any of this shit in class. It's like, yeah. And I just like, hadn't heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's got some history, and you know, a lot of it's similar to kind of if you read other tribes' history. Some of them started out as combinations, almost. So, like, right. there was a larger tribe that was combined, composed of the Omaha and the Quapa, um, and they were in kind of like the Ohio area near like Cincinnati. But they began moving west, and as it began moving west, it really split into, like, the two separate tribes. So the Quapa settled in what's now, like, the Arkansas region, Um, but the Omaha um, settled near the Missouri River and in, like, Iowa and kind of over there. Okay. Um, And then, you know, further conflicts with other tribes. So they had some conflicts with the Sioux, and um, the tribe kind of split into different parts, and they ended up basically retreating into the Nebraska area. Okay. Um, and so that's how they, this is, I'm sorry. Do you know if this is before or like during, I'm assuming this is probably during European, um, European American expansion. Yeah. And I know it's all before like the early 1800s because then okay. what happens is you get a bunch of like treaties with the U S government and them interfering in things mm-hmm. from like yeah. the 1830s to fifties. Um, and so that ends up with them like, kind of working with a number of other tribes and designating certain areas of the land, selling parts <sighs> of their land, kind of like yeah. how that all works out. Um, right, right. And so that's just like obviously very brief history of what's like a very long, <laughs> extensive history of a I tribe. Realized, like reading this, the only time I've ever heard Omaha, other than knowing that I think it – other than knowing it was like Omaha, Nebraska – um, I think of Omaha Beach in uh, D-Day, like the storming of like, Oh, Normandy. yeah. That makes sense. Literally, that's the only other time I've heard of it. So Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so Susan's parents, um, they're culturally Omaha. So they actually have other ancestry for the most part. So they'd lived beyond the Omaha reservation, but both moved back there before her birth. So her father okay. was a man named... Um, Joseph LaFleche, and Iron Eye was his Omaha name. And he was actually from the Ponca tribe and French-Canadian. So Mm. he had been educated in St. Louis before moving to the Omaha reservation. Um, But he was very, like, connected to the culture and basically considered himself Omaha. 
Um, okay. And he was, a, as an adult, he was basically adopted by Chief Big Elk, who was the current chief, and was actually the last, like, full Omaha person to be chief of the tribe. Um, so he and wasn't so he, even technically Omaha, and he became the chief. Yes. Um, wow, that's cool. Yeah, he became, like, the principal leader of the tribe in the 1850s after getting adopted, basically, whatever the adult equivalent of adoption is, um, yeah. by Big Elk. He kind of took him under his wing. And he actually was a little bit, like, controversial, and we'll get into a little more of this, but he was a big proponent of assimilation, basically. Mm, so yeah. Joseph LaFleche slash Iron Eye, like, really believed that the way for them to be safe and successful was to work with white people and sort of act like white people in some senses and be accepted. Um, And one of the things, this will come up later, but one of the things he heavily advocated for that got him in some trouble with certain people was the idea of allotment. Um, And so allotment was basically the idea of the federal government having the power to divide Indian land into owned property. So kind of how we think of like, property right this law is yours this law is mine and that might mean that someone from the tribe owns it and it might mean that the government owns it and it means i can sell it between the two um and it was it seems to be considered like a very at this time now like anti-native american thing right Mm -hmm. it was a way of destroying the tribes and like opening indian land to settlement by non-indian people right um as a note, I'm using the word Indian because a lot of the word Indian, a lot of the literature uses the word Indian because at the time, yeah. that's how allotment is described and like quotes from these people. I know Native American is the preferred term, but even things mm-hmm. like the office Office of Indian Affairs are still. I was gonna say you even called. have like the Office of Indian Affairs. Yeah. And- so usually when I'm saying that, it's coming from a quote, but I know that's not like the best term. Is it still called that, the Office of Indian Affairs? Let's see. It is, yeah. Yeah. So work with me on that one. But basically her dad is kind of a controversial figure because of this. Um, And then he's married to a woman named Mary Gale, who's her mother. And she's the daughter of a white army surgeon and a woman who is part Omaha and part Iowa heritage. But she really heavily identified with, like, the Omaha culture And so even though she spoke English and I think French and had all these other experiences, she refused to speak any language other than the Omaha language. She was like very committed to being culturally Omaha wow, and very tied to it. So Joseph and Mary, LOL, (laughs) Joseph and Mary get married. Um, Oh my God. I didn't even like know what you were talking about. I was like, yeah, so what? And then (laughs) (laughs) Joseph and Mary. one. And then I was like, wait, I feel like I've heard of these people before. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 got, I just got it when I said that now. Um, but anyway. Like, why'd you giggle? <laughs> <laughs> Joseph and Mary. Um, they have four kids. So they have Suzette, Rosalie, Marguerite, and then Susan, who's the youngest. Hmm. Again, Susan and Suzette. Unclear why we have a Susan and a Suzette. Yeah, there are other names. sure. Yes. And then her father, Iron Eye, also had an older son. Seems like from... I I couldn't quite tell if it was from a previous relationship or how that worked. I read some about, like, a history of polygamy at some points in the tribe. So I'm not 100% sure how that worked. But she had this older half-brother. 
Gotcha. And so she was raised kind of in this weird in-between where she was raised very much like in the Omaha traditions because her parents were both very culturally tied to the tribe. But her parents also were very worried about like her acceptance by the world at large. And so they didn't do certain things. Like she was never given an Omaha name or they used to do um, like traditional tattoos on the forehead. They never did that with her. They kind of didn't do these things that would outwardly brand her as being related to a tribe. This is like so heartbreaking, but it's not, it's not even for us to judge. It's just like the way that they thought that they could survive best. And exactly. Probably right. Yeah. And then so fucked up about it. Right. And there was things like the mother refused to speak anything, but Omaha. So at home they mostly spoke Omaha, but she was, her and her sisters were highly encouraged that outside of the home, they should speak English or French. Um, so it was kind of like a mixed message almost where at home they were like really, really deeply into their culture, but like they shouldn't present like that. Um, and there was a quote I found, um, I found some version of this a couple places, so it's probably paraphrased, but basically that they grew up remembering her father saying, do you always want to be simply called those Indians or do you want to go to school and be somebody in the world? So her father very much had like some sort of complex that is fair but is getting like pushed onto the kids right of wanting to be seen as more than than just omaha wow Um, that's gonna come up too with her medical practice which is kind of interesting yeah and she did as a kid um there was like a brief story that she witnessed an elder from the tribe die after a white doctor refused treatment which kind Mm -hmm. of sparked her interest in medicine and the way it intersected with like native american identity um, yeah. So I couldn't find how old she was, but I did see that story. I saw that too. And I think it was something very much along the lines of like um, the doctor made a comment saying like, she's just an Indian. Right. And like Susan realized, and she brings us a lot into her practice and the way that she understands medicine that like there needed to be like someone to bridge the gap between like native Americans and like physicians basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That kind of like sparks everything for her. Yeah. And so she does kind of what was normal education for a lot of people in the tribe at that time. She attends a boarding school that's on the reservation. So they're not actually like going away, but it seems like they just go stay there. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was run initially by Presbyterians and then by Quakers later. Mm. Um, So she attends that school and then when she's older, she leaves for New Jersey and she studies at the Ooh. Elizabeth Institute. Yep. Dirty Jers. Uh-huh. So she studies, she comes back and begins to teach at that former boarding school she went to, which is pretty like common for women in the tribe at the time, right? You, you go back and be a teacher. Yeah. Um, but she actually only taught for two years before she left again to go to a school called the Hamp- Hampton Institute, um, which is in Virginia. And it was actually okay. a, a historically black college, but oh, wow. at the time it had become a place that a lot of Native Americans were going. They were being accepted there. Um, right. And so it was kind of like a common place for them to go. She was actually there with one of her sisters, her like half brother, and then 10 other people from the Omaha tribe. Um, okay. So there was a, a group of people she knew there. And from what I could find, basically the curriculum was like, here's how to clean and cook and be a good wife for women and for men it was like here's physical labor skills 
So it wasn't what we really think of as college. Yeah. So it basically was like, here is what we think that people of color should be doing. Exactly. It was almost like Mm. trade school, except you don't pick your trade. (laughs) Your trade is just like cook. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it was considered at the time getting, you know, further education. Yeah. Meanwhile, I can cook basic things. And most of the time I just order from like grub up or some shit take out <laughs> that's Same. what i've gotten really good at this quarantine me too um let's see while she was there she had a brief relationship with a sue man but she dumped him before she graduated she was just like no i'm done with this she ended up being the salutatorian and she got some awards for having like the highest exam scores in the school wow so she did a good job yeah but then it sort of is like female graduates initially of, of this institution were generally told, go back and teach or return to your reservations and become a Christian wife and mother, right? That was like, you get your degree and then you go back and do that. But mm-hmm. she was like, nah. Um, I did find a quote from her graduation speech. So because she was the salutatorian, she gave a speech. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. And so she said, we who are educated have to be pioneers of Indian civilization, the white people have reached a high standard of civilization, but how many years has it taken them? We are only beginning, so do not try to put us down, but help us climb higher. Give us a chance. Wow. So she said that in her speech, and then she was like, fuck that, I'm going to go to medical school, is what I want to do. Damn. that's so cool. Right? And so at this time in the 1800s, even if you take out all of the like race elements, it wasn't common for women to go to medical school. Right. Much less Native American women. Um, It was more common within the Omaha for women to become healers. So, like, there was some precedent for them working in medicine, but not through a traditional path of medical school. Um, Again, women in general, much less women that were, like, racial minorities. Um, But there was a school, the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, which had been established in 1850 as, like, one of the first East Coast medical schools for women. Okay. So she got accepted there, but she couldn't pay. Um, She she couldn't afford medical school. And so there was actually a woman she had previously nursed back to health named Alice Fletcher. So she was just someone she'd happened to know during school who had some bouts with, like, um, inflammatory rheumatism. And Susan had helped her a lot, just kind of caretaker stuff. And Alice Fletcher knew a lot of people involved in women's reform organizations. Hmm. Um, And so she kind of engaged that network to help Susan raise the money that she needed. And one of the things she did was she encouraged her to appeal to the Connecticut Indian Association, which was like a local branch of a national, um, Women's National Indian Association. And they were... They were not good, necessarily. Like, their mission statement was to civilize the Indians by encouraging Victorian values of domesticity among Indian women and sponsored field matrons whose task was to teach Native American women cleanliness and godliness. So they're not like... every word that you just said makes me want to vomit. Yeah, so they were not, like, great, but... Alice Fletcher was like, you should write to them. And this is a thing Susan does multiple times throughout, like, all the stuff I researched, is that she pretty much uses, like, the racism against them in her favor Mm -hmm. and, like, plays into it in a way that gets her what she wants. 
kind of. Yeah, I she does something similar like in my segment with like yeah. just trying to get funding for stuff. So um yeah, so she writes to this Connecticut Indian Association and basically tells them she really wants to be a physician so that she can go back to the Omaha and teach them hygiene and like mm. help them be more clean and domestic and like all the things that they want. So she basically just uses it to her advantage and she's like, okay, well you yeah. think like we're all dirty and need to be civilized. So give me money and I'll go civilize them. Even though that's mm-hmm. not what she believes, but it gets her right. the money. They like sponsor her medical school expenses. They pay for her housing, her books, her supplies. Wow. All that. And I actually saw she's considered the first person to receive aid for a professional education like this in the United States. Like, like the first scholar- ever? That's what I read. Wow. And I, again, I couldn't find anything that was like, no, that's not true. Or someone else who is like the second person <laughs> or something like yeah. that. Um, See, this is like, it. this is like indicative of like what her father had been saying too. I feel exactly. like it's like, you know, hide the fact that you are Omaha unless it's to your benefit. And if exactly. it's not your benefit, like downplay it, which right. is so sad. It is. It's and it's like playing like, until else? like, okay, yeah, we're dirty. Give me money. Like, right. Yeah. Because like, it's like, well, the it. Omaha woman said it. So obviously it must be true. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And then Good one for thing. For her though, for figuring it out. Like that's so fucking crazy. And then I thought it was interesting because this organization, their whole thing is to make you like domestic and Victorian and all that. Who um, wants to be Victorian? Literally nobody. I would rather be dead. Oh yeah. But they also. quote me on that. <laughs> They also requested specifically for her to remain single while she was in school and right after graduation to, like, focus on her studies and do a good job. Which, okay, don't fucking tell people what to do with their relationships. But also, I get that. Like, I'm not. Yeah. It seems like not the worst thing they do. Right, right, right. Calling Native Americans dirty might be a little worse. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's and then, fair. so she's in medical school. I read some reports that she basically began to like, quote, look, dress, and act more like her white classmates. So she began mm-hmm. to like wear her hair in different ways than like traditional ways she would have worn it and kind of assimilate like her dad taught her. And again, a lot of people were like, at home, she wasn't like that. She would go back to the tribe and be like very engaged in all of that stuff. So right, it seems right. again like it was sort of, using the situation to her advantage of just being like, I'll do better if I'm this. And so I'm like code switching. Like even her parents named her in the way that like, you wouldn't know that she was native American. Mm -hmm. Like if you just seeing her name, I was like, Oh, her dad's French French Canadian. So I assume that's Mm -hmm. where, the flesh comes from is that it must right. be like and Susan is like a super white person name. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, yeah. Yeah. So I, I saw a bunch of things that kind of mentioned that she did at one point take a break two years into medical school to go home to the reservation because there was a measles outbreak. Um, at and the so school she, or in the reservation uh, in the reservation. So she went okay. to help there with the measles outbreak. Um, and she did. And then she returned to school. And from there, she would like write home to a lot of the healers and stuff with medical advice to try and continue helping them like from school. Wow. So she does her full three years. She graduates as valedictorian. 
Um, and then, um, yeah, so then this, I have ew written here. So after she graduates. I saw that and I was like, what? She, <laughs> she um, so basically after she graduates, the organization that paid for all of her school asks her to do some speaking work, right? Which like kind of mm-hmm. makes sense. You're like a spokesperson or whatever. But basically they sent her on a speaking tour where she like assured white o- audiences that Indians could benefit from white civilization. So they basically had her go on a tour like, look what the white people did for me. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like a little, uh, deal with the devil situation. I feel like, um, did she, she she did do it though? Did she what? She did it. Like she went on the tour. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And I couldn't really find how much she, how much she agreed with it. Right. Because to some extent from what her parents told her and some of the things we know, I think she did believe in some level of assimilation. And needing right. to do that, but I don't think mm-hmm. to this extent. But yeah, they paid for her entire medical school career. And yeah. so she maintained ties with them after that. Um, they like had her be a medical missionary to the Omaha at one point. Um, mm-hmm. And they funded purchase of a bunch of medical stuff for her while she was practicing. So like she right. is benefiting from this as well, even though they're like yeah. not great. So she kind of maintains this relationship with them after she graduates in a way that we now see as very bad, but I don't know at the time if she, if she saw it as negative or as they were helping. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's true because like it, 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 it is bad, but like also who are we to judge? Because again, it's, it's survival. Like, right. It's like, in, and it's also internalized colonialism, you know, it's like that, like trauma of that. So yeah. Well, and I feel like there's just, lots of things people do today where even where you use like, ways you're marginalized as a benefit right even like yeah. tiny like a tiny tiny example i'm like could i carry that heavy thing yes but that dude wants to carry it sure i'm a weak little lady you carry it mm-hmm. right it's like yeah. that's like a microcosm of it is i know that it's coming from this like power dynamic that isn't good but it's right. benefiting me so like do i bother right yeah like, I, mean, I do that I with like, Eric. I'll be like, yeah. oh, that laundry's really heavy. I don't want to yeah. grab it. Eric, and so can I feel you like that's a very, very small version, obviously, of yeah. this. But it's just like, if you're oppressed in certain ways, do you use it to your advantage? Because you're going to continue to be for however long. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of right. like, fuck it. Right. Yeah. Like, she also got to be the first Native American doctor off of it. Right. right. So. So she ended up getting what she ultimately wanted. Yeah. And sometimes in order to do that, you have to, I don't know, maybe you just have to, it's like radical acceptance of like how shitty things are that you have to play this role that you don't want to play. But it, that's really the only path to get to where you deserve to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's her um, up through medical school kind of career. Yeah. And I will so let you I take it from about- there. Perfect. Yeah. So I basically pick up from 1889. Um, so LaFleche is about 24 years old and she returns to the Omaha reservation and she eventually takes up a position as a physician at a government run boarding school. And it's actually, it might be the exact same one that she went to. I wasn't sure if it was the same in terms of name. I couldn't find that, but I, yeah, I didn't have the name of her school. There probably weren't that many. So she probably in 
she probably does return to the boarding school, but instead of being a teacher, like she probably initially was expected to be, um, she goes as the school's physician. So her responsibilities include teaching kids about staying healthy, personal hygiene, et cetera. So I think it's interesting that there was this whole like hygienic part of it, but I think mm-hmm. actually as she did her medical practice, I think she did realize that there is a huge hygienic component. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not like that. When she did her not studies. A thing. Right. So it's interesting that it was like, here's what you should be teaching. But then also it's like mid, like medically. Yeah. This is probably something good to teach kids, like how to be cleaner, not, in, not because like culturally, but because like it spreads disease, you know, easier if you're dirty kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So she wasn't actually obligated at any point to take care of the community while she was in this position as the like physician. Cause she basically was like, I don't know how to say this other than like a glorified school nurse. That's yeah. kind of the impression that I got. Um, even though she was a doctor. So she actually ended up kind of expanding her influence to like caring for more than just the kids in the reservation or in the boarding school, she was at one point caring for up to 1200 people, you know, like by herself. So her office was small. It was only about 12 feet by 16 feet. It was in the corner of the schoolyard and she helped people with their health as well as other things that they needed help with in terms of writing and letters and reading and translation of official documents. So it's interesting because one of the biggest things that, you know, shitty white people typically did was make these like deals with native Americans that were obviously unfair and they used the like illiteracy to their advantage. And so Susan knew this shit was going like going down and she tried her best to like help however she could beyond just being a doctor. Um, she made house calls for patients who were struggling with things like dysentery, cholera, influenza, tuberculosis, um, and who could like not visit her office because they were just too physically frail or sick. Um, fun story about dysentery. I, (laughs) (laughs) I always died of dysentery on the Oregon trail whenever I I played in, in elementary school. Well, I thought it was cool until I got older and learned that dysentery is just diarrhea. Yeah. And I was like pissed because all my friends like drowned or got bit by a rattlesnake. And, and I you just pooped to death. myself to death. <laughs> yeah. I was very disappointed. I was like, I'm so sorry. It's fine. I'm like kind of over it. But like, I don't think you are. Every time. No, you're right. I'm not. Because every time I see the word dysentery, I'm like, God damn you, Oregon Trail. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so she did have a government salary for doing just the job as a physician. She made a whopping $500 a year. Ooh. As well as an additional $250 a year from the Women's National Indian Association because she worked as a medical missionary. Like so that's the, yeah, that's them. Mm-hmm. So that's about $21,000 in today's money. I think I just blindly trusted Google on that one. So yeah, I mean, what were you going to do, math? Yeah, right. Oh, God. And that's like hard math. That's not like yeah, one plus that's one. not, right. It's inflation. Like inflation is no. percentages and shit. Like yeah, I'm not no. touching that. I barely got through algebra two. I'm not going to fuck around. Um, (laughs) I was great at algebra two. I took it twice. Yeah. Like that was pretty much where I think about the kids 
today who have to learn math online because of the pandemic. And I just, yeah, my heart weeps for them because <laughs> I just, I couldn't, I'd be like, fuck this. I'm not going to learn yeah, this. No. I don't want to do yeah, this. Okay. Um, so one of the quotes I read, I, it's a little bit longer, but I thought it just kind of summed it up. And basically for $21,000 a year in today's money, she quote, became the sole doctor for 1,244 patients spread over a massive territory of uh, 1,350 square miles. House calls were arduous. Long portions of her 20-hour workdays were spent wrapped in a buffalo robe, driving her buggy through blankets of snow and biting sub-zero windows at windows <coughs> winds with her mares, Pat and Pudge. So I just had to say Pat and Pudge. Pat and Pudge. Oh my God. What great Precious. cat names also. Yeah. Uh, who were her only companions. When she returned home, the woman known as Dr. Sue often found a line of wheezing and coughing patients awaiting her. LaFleche's office hours never ended. While she slept, the lantern lit in her window remained a beacon for anyone in need of help. And so her really big claim to fame during this time period is just straight up being the like core of the community in terms of healthcare. Yeah. And she, I read a couple things that said that one of her most like challenging tasks was getting people to trust her. Mm -hmm. Um, there was this great sense of like, she's been assimilated too much that she's not really one of us. Right. Um, so there was a lot of work that she had to do to sort of prove that like, she was one of them and that she was there to help them. And she wasn't just like a, like a quote, whitened unquote, like version of herself. Right. Which I imagine is really difficult. They, one of the authors I was reading described it as straddling two civilizations. And I don't like the word straddle, but I, I get it. Like I understand. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, homegirl right. was going around making speeches about how she was going to like clean them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So like that definitely must have gotten back to the Omaha yeah. people. So there was this sense of like having to work to earn their trust. But there right. was one story that I heard um, her kind of like tell on one of the videos that I watched that like there was an eight-year-old boy who was incredibly sick and she made a house call and she helped him get better. And a couple days later she saw him running around and playing and she smiled at him and he smiled back at her and like the parents – saw her and smiled at her as well. And she's like, and that's when I knew that I had their trust. Like they could oh. tell that yeah. I was there for them and I was one of them. So a few years after she started her work as a physician at the school and started being a crazy, awesome, badass who made ridiculous house calls, uh, in December of 1892, LaFleche became extremely ill and she was forced into bed rest for several weeks. She took off work again a few months later um, in 1893 when her own mother was incredibly sick. And later that year, she actually resigned from her position to take care of her terminal mother full time, which is okay. heartbreaking. Yeah. The following year, uh, 1894, LaFleche met and got engaged to a Sioux Indian named Henry Picot, who had been married and divorced, which I guess wasn't common or was it common? I don't really know because her friends like, and family were kind of shocked that she was interested in this guy and okay. they were sort of shocked that this romance was even happening in the first place. Um, but I don't know if that was because he was Sue or if that was because he was divorced, but it yeah. there really wasn't a lot on their marriage actually. So, uh, the couple got married in June of 1894 
And over the next two years, she and her husband had two sons, Carl and Pierre. Carl, I thought for the entire time I did this research, was Carol. Yeah. Because it's C-A-R-Y-L. Yeah, that's Carol. Carol. But I think it was Carl. I think. Because I saw it spelled without the Y somewhere else. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah, so it could just be like a fancy French way of spelling Carl. Right. Um, Because her son's Pierre, which is also very French. So she, like, very much continued her practice of medicine even after she had her kids, which was huge. It was actually not even the fact that she was a Native American doing it. It was the fact that Victorian women were not expected to be full-time mothers because what else are women for? That's all they're supposed to be for is for having babies. That's like, she has two whole things going on here. Cause it's like being a woman doctor at the time yeah. was not a yeah. thing, even if you were white and then being a native American doctor was not common, even if you were a man. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, she's actually, just like doing a both. great quote about that. And the last okay. part, when I talk about her legacy, literally it's, it's exactly that. I'm so glad. Okay. You brought that up I won't, spo- like, no spoilers. No, no, it's great. It like everything comes full circle from there. So perfect. Um, something also that I found, which I thought was really cool, was her practice was set up in Bancroft, Nebraska. So I guess the location of that made it possible for her to treat both Omaha and white patients. So she actually okay. didn't just have patients who were Omaha. There were, and this is again going to sound fucked up, but like there were white people who who wanted her as their physician, which yeah. I think says a lot. And I think that that kind of is again, we see this like cross over between her two different identities almost. Yeah. Um, she worked endlessly on educating the members of her community about public health issues like preventative medicine. And this is basically the part where I talk about public health reforms because she's a part of a few really big ones. Um, the first one being a smaller scale temperance movement. So for those of you who have no idea what the fuck temperance means, <laughs> it means like no drinking. It's the same as the, um, Oh, fuck. What's that word? I don't know. Prohibition. Prohibition. Oh, yeah. Prohibition. That's what I'm trying to say here. I'm like, the 20s, you know, with the gangsters. Yes. yes. Temper- temperance was like, I feel like the woman's argument for prohibition, which was very, like, moralistic. Yes. Mm-hmm. So for her, it, it didn't seem to be, I couldn't get a good read on her, like, like um what's the word like religion like she was presbyterian but then also kind of had similar omaha traditions so yeah this didn't seem to be as moral as it did like health um so she knowing full well having grown up on the reservation that alcoholism was a huge issue um one of the reasons why was because shitty white people and they used the word disreputable but i changed it for them because i think <laughs> shitty white people works better yeah would use alcohol to take advantage of the omaha people and then it would make these like outrageous and unfair land deals when the omaha people weren't able to like actually sign off on anything sober and then all oh, of a yeah. sudden it was like it was guaranteed as like law right so you had right. to obey that fucking contract um Susan also knew this because she was a prominent member of the community, like I said, because of her time in working with people to help them translate and read documents. And on top of that, she had this experience at a personal level because her husband, Henry, suffered with alcoholism, which I find really heartbreaking. And that's actually going to ultimately cause 
him to die from tuberculosis in a few paragraphs when I talk about that. <laughs> uh, so she pretty much knew firsthand what alcoholism was doing for people, like four people, two, two people, people and two families, especially like she knew that the impact wasn't just on the individual, but was also on the families that were in those, um, in, in the lives of the people who struggled with it. Yeah. So Susan was so against alcohol consumption that she actually openly supported measures like coercion and corporal punishment to discourage people within the Omaha community from any kind of drinking. So, so you just got a spanking. Yeah. So funny story about corporal. I thought that said corporeal. And then Good. I was like, isn't that like ghosts? Yeah. Corporeal punishment. They send the ghost of Christmas past. To your house. Honestly, that would probably work more so than being like hit. If you sent a ghost to my house, and I was like, right? Like, I guess when you're like the ghost of people who died of alcoholism. Yeah, Yeah, holy shit. (laughs) Yes, that's actually that's straight up. And then I had to read it again and I was like, Corporal, oh, that's being hit. Yeah. That's different from corporeal. Yes. Which is like ghost or some shit. Yes. They're very similar words, but also very different. <laughs> right. Like very different. Yes. There was a lot of learning for me in this episode. Um, <laughs> so something I thought was interesting since her father at the time was like in charge, he actually set up basically the secret police system and the system basically also supported physical punishment for those who had consumed alcohol, which, you know, again, this is one of those things where it's like, we have a problem. How do we deal with this problem? Maybe this is a good way to deal with the problem. And I think Susan knew that it was an illness. Yeah. But I also don't think at this time there was nearly enough information about mental health services. So like, right. you know, it wouldn't, it's not shocking that, you know, physical punishment was, was a possibility for quote unquote curing it or ending it. Right. Her thing was it, it affected the community more. Um, and it wasn't just about the people who were getting sick from it, but it was also about like how it was making the community unhealthy and unsafe. Yeah. It was public health. Exactly. Right. Uh, So she was a big proponent of prohibition, and she actually campaigned for a prohibition law in Thurston County in the early 1890s, which is really ahead of the timeline for American prohibition. That's not going to really happen until right after World War I, I think. Yeah, the 20s, right? Yeah, like, yeah, the 20s. Yeah, I think it's like 1919. Um, Unfortunately, the law didn't pass because of more shitty-ass white people who sold liquor and specifically targeted illiterate Omahas by passing out ballot tickets that had, quote, against prohibition on them. So when they went to go vote or turn in their ballots, it literally was a vote against prohibition. So, yeah. Um, Other sources claimed that the... um, Omaha were bribed with alcohol by white people to not vote for the Prohibition Act. And um, Susan later lobbied for a bill that would basically outlaw the sale of alcohol to, quote, any recipient of allotted land whose property was still held in trust by the government, quote. So the way I read that was she lobbied for a bill that would outlaw the sale of alcohol to Omaha. Yeah. People. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is probably sketchy in its own way. Totally. Right. Again, now we have discrimination, but it's like right. for their own good in her yeah. head. So it's interesting because like she I would say that like if if she was a white woman, I'd be like, she's problematic as fuck. 
Right. But because this is so internalized, it just yeah. is different for me. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I agree. Um, so the bill that she was advocating for later became law in January of 1897, but it was pretty much impossible to actually enforce because how do you do that? Right. So she can, uh, continued to fight against alcohol for literally the rest of her career and her life. Um, but something that did end up helping with at least the Omaha reservation was the arrival of the peyote religion in the early 1900s. <laughs> okay. So you just so, did peyote instead. Well, so that's what I thought. And I was like, mm. but actually the religion itself, which this is really cool. And I feel like we should probably do some stuff on this. Um, basically it combines Christianity and traditional like ideas and like spiritual ideas of, oh, I thought it was native just a, American people. Well, I it, thought it was it just is. a drug. It, okay. So I think, right. So it is, but the idea of peyote, I guess is like, you're supposed to have like a physical and mental and emotional like breakthrough essentially. Yeah. Um, and the way the church was preaching it, it kind of reconnected a lot of Omaha people with that part of them. Okay. And so that caused a lot of them to actually reject alcohol. And so Susan was kind of like, well, you know what? Like, this is something I don't totally agree with this either, but at least it's, you know, it's helping in some capacity. Um, so temperance wasn't Susan's only public health initiative. She also worked on more, quote, wide community public health issues. So I think that basically means stuff that didn't just impact white people. I'm sorry, Omaha people, but also impacted just the larger population. Okay. And some of those included food, sanitation, school hygiene, and then fighting the spread of tuberculosis, specifically tuberculosis. So she did this by serving on health board of the local town of Walt Hill. She was a founding member of the Thurston County Medical Society, which was established in 1907. And she also became the chair of the state health committee of the Nebraska Federation of Women's Clubs. I did not know any of these things existed, which is no. really fucking cool. But they also sound kind of boring. Right. I'm glad they existed, but also that I didn't have to go to the meetings. Correct. Like, could you imagine a Zoom meeting for the fucking Nebraska Federation of Women's Clubs? No. I would literally like to stab my eye out. Yeah, no, um, I'm good. Most of her time was focused on educating people about public health because she believed that education was the ultimate key to fighting disease. And I cannot agree with her more. If yeah. you look at studies, if you look at things like having actual comprehensive sex ed, if, if you, you look, look at Facebook at, right now. <laughs> yeah. or like if you just look at like i look at the um uh aids crisis in africa yeah and there was more education about it like numbers drastically went down over the years because people had the education and the resources to like understand it um her most well-known crusade was like i said the one against tuberculosis which was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of omaha including her husband henry in 1905 and two years later in 1907, she also contacted the Indian office and asked them to help with supplying her and the community to prevent tuberculosis. And the office refused because they were like, huh, we don't have money, which I doubt. Um, or they right. really didn't have money because nobody fucking funded them. Yeah. True. Um, so she didn't obviously know of any cures for tuberculosis, but she advocated for fresh air, cleanliness, and the eradication of houseflies, which were believed to be carriers of tuberculosis, which I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, it could be. Um, but, yeah, so she kind of knew, like, okay, well, you can't, like, keep – if someone is infected, you need to have, like, 
cleaner air, you need to stay away from them. Like it's transmitted through air, I think it is, right? Sure. Like if somebody with TB coughs on you. Is tuberculosis (laughs) airborne? (laughs) Airborne particles called droplets. So I think that's the same as like COVID sitch. I was going to say, so it's basically like COVID, but TB. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, So, yeah. So her ability and willingness to engage in health reform and action eventually carried her into other areas besides public health, which you're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, I know you're going to pick up after Henry's death. She started to become more active in in campaigns to um, extend the trust period for the Omaha and a bunch of other cool, awesome things that go beyond just being a physician. And I'm going to let you take back over. Yes. So basically after Henry died, the big thing she took up was again, this idea of like land allotment and how it worked. So when Henry died, he left land to her and their sons, but because of the, the laws, and I'll talk about the big one in a minute, the land was still held in trust in trust by the government. So like Henry wasn't technically the owner the government was. And so in order to get either the land or the money for the land, the heirs had to prove competency, whatever the hell that means. Wait, they had to. Okay. So it's technically not his land to give away is what their argument is. Basically. Yeah. Okay. And so if they're going to give it to them as heirs, they have to like prove they're competent to like own the land. Um, and a lot of this came from something called the Dawes act in the late 1800s. And so that was a law that basically, like I said before, it forced individuals to maintain ownership of the allotments rather than having, like, tribal ownership of land. So instead of just being like, this is the Omaha Reservation, this is like everyone has a house on this land, it put it into more of the, like, American capitalist idea of, like, this is your lot of land, right? Like, you own this. So would that basically have eradicated reservations? In some senses, um, it threatened, like, their autonomy over the reservation. So I think the area would still be designated as a reservation, but it was a lot more of a business transaction about it. And what it did, the Dawes Act, it said that if land wasn't allotted to individuals, so if nobody owned it, it could be reclaimed by the U.S. and sold outside of the tribe. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um. And they kind of had a a time period they had until 1910 to allot all of the reservation land to their people. Right. um, Before the U.S. would start reclaiming it. And so Susan actually became part of, like, advocacy to persuade officials to let them keep the the quote-unquote surplus land. But that's, that's a few years later. But basically right now, her husband had been allotted that land. So it's in trust from the government to him. Um, and since her sons were minors, they also had to have a legal guardian prove competency, right? None of them just got the land because he died. Right. And so she spends two years arguing, sending letters back and forth to like prove she's competent and make this argument. And she gets her part of the money for the land. But for whatever reason, and I don't know how or why, she wasn't considered the guardian of the son's land. What? Like, she was their guardian, but not of the land. It was almost like when you have, like, you know how if you die, you might have, like, an estate person, like, a person in charge of the estate or whatever. It seems Yes. It seems like something like that. So he, Henry had a relative named Peter Picot, 
he was like the guardian of the son's land. Oh, probably because he was a man. Exactly. That was my guess. Mm. Um, and he sucked and he lived in another and state. He, he lived in another state and was basically like, yeah, I don't care. And wasn't willing to bother to like argue to get this land for the sons. Oh, my God. And so Susan was like, absolutely fuck that. Um, and she sent a bunch of letters to the heads of, like, local Indian offices and commissions and basically slandered Peter Picot and was like, he's a drunk. The guy here, R.J. Taylor, who was, like, one of the local people, is incompetent and, like, making this case for herself as the best manager of her son's money. So, like, right. arguing that she should be in charge of it. And okay. people actually read these letters, and the Indian office responded, like, within a week, telling her that the local person had been ordered to ignore Peter Picot's objections. So she gets the money for her sons. Okay. Just I mean, she's fucking proven herself time and time again. Yeah, maybe. Like, exactly. She just has community to, leader and yeah, position. She has to, like, spend two years arguing for her money and then get the son's money. And right. so, but then luckily she has it, and that gives them enough that she actually invests in rental properties, and that's able to support her and her sons for wow. a long time. So, like, she uses that money really in a really smart way. Right. Um, And then the next year... Her sons inherited some land from um, the Sioux side of the family, and she had to basically do this whole thing again, right? Like, oh. people were trying to not give them the land, so she was like, well, I guess I got to write some more letters, and, like, yeah. had to do this whole thing to get them the rights to that land. And that didn't come back to her. That was for her sons when they were of age. Never fuck around with a Victorian woman who can write letters. Right. Well, and basically, Ever. after all of this, she was like, okay, all of the bureaucracy of land allotment sucks. All the rules suck. I hate it. So she, again, kind of started helping people in the community, like, understand the law, write letters. She would write on their behalf. She would defend them when it was like people were taking advantage. So she would almost go in as if she was legal representation to be part of a conversation and, like, translate it for people who didn't understand it as well as her. Have you seen Schitt's Creek? Um, Yes. Okay, do you know when Alexis and David go into the blouse barn and they pretend yes. to be the lawyers? That's literally the first That's thing that I thought basically of. what she does. Yeah. That's awesome. Except she's, like, good at it. Right. <laughs> um, and she actually, this was, like, the coolest part to me, is in all this work, she discovered, like, a crime syndicate on the reservation. So it was being run by three white men and two Omaha men. And I did note all men. But it was three white men and two Omaha men, like, working in cahoots, mm. who basically were, like, defrauding miners out of their land. Right? Oh like, people God. who didn't She's understand. She's doing the work for the fucking government. Yes. And she, like, discovered this and turned them in and was like, absolutely stop that. And because they were, like, getting land from miners who couldn't get their rights and didn't understand how. Right. Um... And then, so this is a place where she does the thing again, where sometimes she's, like, using racism to her advantage. So she spent, like, her whole life trying to argue and prove and make people see that Omaha are just as civilized as white people, right? Or right. or uncivilized as something, like, that they're the same. But she basically writes a letter to, like, the offices of Indian Affairs, like, okay, well, not all of us, after she discovers this syndicate, and basically oh. says that, like, some of the Omaha are too incompetent to protect themselves against these fraudsters and therefore needed more guardianship from the government. So she turns it on them and is like, you're right. We're like so stupid and don't know what's going on that we need you to help us more. 
Yeah. And she says that even though most Omaha are perfectly competent to, like, handle their own affairs, that the Indian office had stifled the development of business and knowledge of the white world among them, right? So they, like, purposely kept them uninformed and not knowing how to work and navigate these different business dealings. And therefore, yes, some of them are incompetent, but it was their fault, was basically her but, argument. Well, you know what? That's it's interesting because this is this is the token colonialism like trope. Like this yes. is what colonial powers do. If you look at this shit in like the different states of Africa, they were like people who were African were not allowed to have positions in government and they yes. were not allowed to have all of these like educational opportunities. And then when the colonial power was like, Hey, bye, we're leaving. There was nobody to fucking run the government. Exactly. Because they never permitted it in the first place. So it's yeah. kind of like for this is this, I would definitely say for her is, is she's making a good point. Like I, oh, yeah, I she's right. Exactly and she's, she's arguing. Yeah. She's right. And then she's doing that thing where she's like, okay, sure. Maybe we suck. Give me money about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like you keep fucking complaining, but how about you just actually provide us with funds to fix these problems? Exactly. And so things don't change. (laughs) And like with that, she was a part of a few other campaigns, like kind of against these different Office of Indian Affairs initiatives right so there was one to consolidate the omaha and the winnebago agencies and she was like not having that and so she did a bunch of letter writing there where she used kind of these same tactics yeah um and a lot of her argument was like they're creating all this unnecessary red tape with a consolidation and that it was just more of a burden on the omaha and proof that they were being treated like children rather than citizens Mm -hmm. um and so she kind of continued this argument throughout the rest of her life. Um, But then it was sad. A lot of things were like, though it pretty much seemed to be in vain, like a lot of her people lost their ancestral lands and they became more dependent on the OIA. So it's like, you'll talk about her legacy, I know, but it wasn't like, well, she made this one big change, but that's what she worked for and argued for a lot of her later life was getting them to both be treated like they were competent and could do things, but also have the resources to actually become competent at these things. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So that's, yeah, that's sort of her, her political thing. And it's interesting because her father had so much of this, like, being pro-land allotment. And mm-hmm. she comes in and spends a lot of her life not necessarily arguing it against it, but for ways to do it better. Right. Yeah, and I feel like that's that's pretty much a big part of the legacy that she does leave behind. Um mm-hmm. I, I talked a little bit about, uh, in my research, I found some stuff about her illness and then death and then kind of, like... Like, not, I don't want to say why she matters, but really that's why we, we choose these women. It's like, why do they matter? Right. So, um, so Picot suffered, or no, not Picot, LaFleche. Haha. Susan. Susan. Sue. My girl Sue. Suffered. My girl Sue. Dr. Sue. Suffered for most of her life from chronic illness. Um, so while she was in medical school, she'd been bothered by um, having trouble breathing. After a few years working on the reservation, she was also forced to take a break to recover her health, which I mentioned in 1892. And she also suffered from chronic pain in her head, neck, and ears. So in 1893, she had become sick even further because she fell from her horse. I don't know if it was Pat or Pudge, but it was one of them, I imagine. And <laughs> I she hope. ended up with <laughs> – it's very important. It's probably important to know which horse, but – Of course. So she fell from the horse, and she ended up with significant internal injuries, which over time became worse and worse. So Susan lost her hearing due to her conditions and she was never officially diagnosed with anything because I don't, 
necessarily know if they had figured out what it was at that point. Right. Um, but as she got older, her health declined even more. And she was also constantly fucking beating her body with her work. Like, I mean, she was living in extreme conditions. She had a 20 hour work day. There was never any sense of rest for her. So she lived a very hard life, which is a big part of the reason why I think her body was so battered. Yeah. Um, by 1913, she was too frail to be the sole administrator in the Walt Hill Hospital that had been finished with the construction just a couple, I think it was actually that year that they finished it. Um, so two years later, by March of 1915, she was suffering from extreme pain and discomfort because of bone cancer. And she later died of this several months later on September 18th, 1915 at the age of 50. So, you know, we are talking about the 1915, you know, the aughts, whatever, 1910s, but it was very much an early death, I would say. Yeah. Um, So services for her were held the following day that she died and she was buried in the Bancroft Cemetery in Bancroft, Nebraska, near her parents, sisters, her half-brother, as well as her husband. So her two children both went on to live full and happy, I imagine, lives. Um, so her son, Carl, or Carol, uh, was, a, <laughs> was a career, <laughs> Carl with a Y, uh, he became a career soldier in the Army, and he actually served in World War II before he moved to California. And Pierre remained in Nebraska, where he raised his family of three children. So over her 30-plus year career, she served well over 1,300 patients within a very small square mileage. Um, some put that at like 450 square miles. Some put that as over 1,000. I would say it's probably over 1,000, at least in the terms of like the entire reservation and yeah. the areas beyond that she served. Right. So her legacy is also it's, – it's also sad because it's sort of falling apart. Um, so the first reservation hospital, which was the one that was finished in 1913 that she could have been the like administrator of, but she was just too sick to do. Mm -hmm. Um, it was actually, like I said, the first hospital in the reservation and it had been built in Walt Hill and it was later turned into a community center for old folks and it was named after her. So it soon became a national historic landmark in 1993. But unfortunately, the hospital slash center is one of the 11 most endangered places as of 2018. And cool. work has been continuously underway to raise funds for its restoration. So I thought that was really fucking sad. Also because she fought so hard to try to get more money. And <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Uh, there's also an elementary school named after her in Western Omaha. And okay. on June 17th, 2017, Google released a Google Doodle. And we love Google Doodles. I always learn so much from the Google Doodles. Yeah. Um, there's also a bust of her that was dedicated to her at the Martin Luther King Jr. Transportation Center in Sioux City. And the, the one quote that I kind of wanted to just kind of readdress, because you sort of mentioned it, mm-hmm. um, was by author Joe Starita, who just wrote a book, A Warrior of the People, How Susan LaFleche Overcame Racial and Gender Inequality to Become America's First Indian Doctor, um, which looks really interesting. Yeah. So he his quote is, um, when I got into the research, I was stunned by how deeply entrenched gender bias was in the Victorian era. White women were largely oh, expected... Right. But <laughs> if he but, was stunned, if he was stunned, it's a dude. <laughs> right. So I 
I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, okay, so this bro's never read history, but like his next couple sentences make sense. So okay. white white women were largely expected to just raise children and maintain a safe Christian home. One can only imagine where that bar was set for a Native American woman. And his yeah. book talks a lot about how it wasn't even just the fact that she was Native American. It was the fact that she was a woman. Yeah. Um, and the final thing, which I'll probably put this on the Instagram quote because I really liked this one, uh, was a quote that says, I shall always fight good and hard, even if I have to fight alone. Yeah. And that is Susan LaFleche. And I think that overall, you know, she's not a figure that we necessarily would have heard about. And I wonder if it's because of like our region, you know, like I wonder if people who live in Nebraska or Iowa, like would learn more about her. Maybe, but I feel like, like I grew up in Florida where there's a lot of native American territory and I don't feel like we learned a lot about that. Yeah. Well, there's like a whole thing now. Um, Native American land um, acknowledgement. Okay, here it is. So, oh yeah, where you like been, where you are? Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about this in in school um, because, fortunately, but also like in this really fucked up way, the topic of race and um, culture and diversity has always been one that I don't want to say that teachers have avoided, but they've always been sort of like encouraged to not really talk about because it's yeah. like dangerous territory but now honestly every ever since everything that's happened in june um with george floyd and um uh black lives matter and and those movements taking a, a really huge foothold we've been doing a lot more work with understanding our own um i mean we're technically calling it unconscious bias but we're also looking at it more like okay well how do we talk more about this stuff in a classroom so that way like fragile white kids aren't fragile anymore you know what i mean right. like how they act come to terms with the atrocities that that their white ancestors have committed and how do we move forward with that so we've done a lot of work with looking at native american land acknowledgement i i'll admit i haven't done as much as i could but i also don't teach American history. I think if I right. did, I would be a little bit focused mostly on like, you know, colonialism in the South Pacific and in, you know, in Africa and throughout India and stuff like that. So. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, I thought she was a really interesting character in history. Yeah. I think she has, there is this sense of like, you know, when I first started researching her, I was worried there would be like this like savior complex kind of thing. Yeah. But I saw that she was actually more, I don't want to use the word problematic, but she was a lot more complex. complex. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like there were a lot of like layers to it. Yeah. It so. isn't just like she's awesome and great and saved everyone. Right. right. And like, you don't like, again, you don't want to like tokenize it. But it's, yeah. like, a really good example of how fucking complicated it really was to to be a Native American female and a doctor right. and to be taken seriously. But then to also know that you're going to have to compromise something. Right. You know? So. Yep. Well, that was uh, – that, that's heavy for, for Thanksgiving. I hope all you bitches out there are thankful yeah uh, you know you don't it have is to also struggle i think technically <laughs> national um native american heritage month 
Yes. I yes, it is. Oh my God, you're right. It is. So that works. Cool. Look so at we're us. on theme. We're thriving. We're thriving. We are on we're, fleek. We knew that the whole time. The whole time. That's why that we was, chose Susan. Yep. That was the plan. Dr. Sue. Yeah. But I definitely think looking at her story, I definitely would like to learn more about Native Americans and yeah. their history in the United States, for sure. Like, I feel like we could easily do uh, learning about, like, the Omaha, the Sioux. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, y'all. Yeah. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving, but also stay in a house with no more than six people from two households. Thank you. Correct. And wear a mask and make sure you wash your hands and sing happy birthday twice. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just push through because the shit's not going away, friends. The shit's not going away. (laughs) Call your relatives who voted for Trump stupid. Have a good time. Oh, God. (laughs) I just saw this really funny meme. One of the other um, history podcasts posted it on their Instagram. And it was like, whatever you do, do not bring politics into Christmas this year. And the picture was Joe Biden wrapping paper. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so funny. I honestly (laughs) want that. My whole family would love it, but it'd be fun. No, God. I literally... I. Don't know what would happen if I if I gave it to like my <laughs> grandfather. I think he would literally disown me. Oh yeah, like, my whole family if I would was be in like, his will. He'd be like, scratch her out. Like, <laughs> oh no, my grandma would be like, where'd you get that? I want to wrap everything in that too. <laughs> I could definitely do it for my father-in-law, but I definitely couldn't do it for my dad or for my grandfather. But, yeah, or my uncles or anyone on my mom's side of the family. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> All right. Um, have a. I will say, have a merry Thanksgiving. Have a merry Thanksgiving. Have the most joyous of Thanksgivings. Remember um, that you got to be safe and you're yeah. not on your own land. Yeah. So enjoy that. Cool. <laughs> okay. Bye. bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to What the History Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at WT History Pod. You're also welcome to email us at whatthehistorypodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions or questions. Please subscribe to the podcast so that upcoming episodes show up in your feed and we will talk to you soon.